Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair. I'm the Frequent Issuer's Managing Editor. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Uh, now, John, when you came back from a conference a little while ago uh, telling me that you'd met a woman and that there was talk of first dates and hickeys, I thought, well, this is this is really going to build the podcast audience up. Um, but actually, the truth is is even more exciting than that, isn't it? Um, what was the event? Who did you meet? I can't believe it. Um, Valerie Hickey is the World Bank Global Director of Environment, Natural Resources and the Blue Economy. And we were thrilled to have her as the keynote speaker at our conference on financing solutions for sustainable food and water, which we held on the 19th of June. It was the first time um, Euromoney's ever done an event on just food and water. It was a really exciting event. Um, we had a terrific audience. Uh, it was sponsored by Rabobank. And um, we hope to um, get this going again next year. Uh, but Valerie gave a fantastic introduction to the conference um, from her experience, which has included working at the WWF and for 19 years at the World Bank. Yeah. Now, I mean, anyone who uh, goes on to listen to the interview will um, get why I then reference sort of first dates. But what I thought was interesting was the fact she she basically to summarize, she said uh, there were many sort of first dates when trying to get development finance off the ground, but very little sort of follow up. Um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting for us to be able to publish this on this podcast is at these conferences, you have this sort of wonderful sort of em- energy and gathering of people all with a common purpose in the room. And then what you probably find afterwards is it's only really the people in the room that had anything, you know, the rest of the world didn't even really know what was going on. So it's really good that we get to sort of broadcast this to sort of the wider world to see and, you know, give, give I guess, our audience uh, a chance to hear from these experts directly and the people sort of leading this uh campaign for sort of ESG finance and what it what it means and what it entails. Yeah, Valerie's in charge at the World Bank of dealing with things like how to promote economic development while at the same time safeguarding the natural environment. And, you know, these issues are really, they're literally vital, right? They're, they're the things that we all rely on for life. So um, th- there really couldn't be anything more important than than food and water. And the, the conference really brought home to me not only that how how important it is, which is obvious, but just the sheer interest of the industry and and the incredibly um, important and diverse things that are going on there to make it more sustainable. Yeah, that's right. And I think from I guess from our point of view, you know, we we sort of observe the capital markets and the people in the capital markets, uh, you know, are, are sort of doing all these deals and these financings and fundraisings and all the rest of it. But this is a, a good chance to see where, you know, that money sort of goes and what mm. it's for and where it where it ends up and why it's important that it's raised. Um, I mean, some of the things I thought she talked about that were interesting was the, the um, sort of difficulty in getting sort of, uh, you know, uh, initiatives going uh, in the first place, um, which I suppose anyone who was there for the birth of the green market must must know something about and of course um one thing i thought was interesting she talked about building systems rather than projects as the sort of future of uh, development finance at the world bank mm-hmm. yeah i think there's you know a big move in development finance over the last 20 years i suppose towards that but <laughs> it can be difficult and some of the stakeholders you know want they like nice big projects 
um, you know, whether it's the donors or the or the um, recipient countries sometimes, um, they sort of in some ways easier, they, uh, you know, <laughs> you have something tangible at the end you can point to. But, um, you know, really w- what matters is things like, um, you know, whether whether the transport networks work, whether there's education, health and so on. These are the these are the things that really make an economy uh, improve. Okay, well, that will be coming up later. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, back to our bread and butter of the capital markets. And after very little activity for the last 18 months, we've now had three IPOs in a week in Europe. Um, There was a 1.6 billion euro Bucharest listing of Hydroelectrica, which is the state-backed electricity provider in Romania. Uh, Nucera, the German manufacturer, was spun out of ThyssenKrupp in a 526 million euro listing in Frankfurt. And there was a 290 million pound IPO for Cab Payments, which is a business to business cross border payments firm, which uh, more more commonly operates as Crown Agents Bank. Now, the reason we're mentioning these is, of course, because any any. Uh, keen listener to this podcast or reader of global capital in fact will will know that it's been an absolutely torrid time for um for ipos so um john what um i mean also you know even just a few weeks ago we had a a big deal come to the london market uh which everyone was hoping would be uh an exciting sort of moment for the market to turn around and and it was it was Hoyt. Um, that was the ipo of we soda a few weeks ago so what were the positive points of this week's deals yeah, I think I think it's a very interesting thing about this story by Aidan Gregory, our equities editor, is that um, exactly that that the you know we've got three deals in in a week now, which is remarkable. It hasn't happened for you know best part of two years, um, and it's not that com- not that confidence has really built up very evidently before now. So these deals are really the ones that people are hoping will prove that there's confidence and prove that the market's back. And, um, you know, so far, it's sort of six out of 10 for that. Or, or, you know, maybe I'm being unfair, perhaps seven or eight out of 10. But but the thing is that that um, the We Soda episode was was supposed to do that. And, and it was a, a disaster. Um, the company, you, you know, everybody thought it would go well. It was a nice, big, chunky list in London, just what London needed. And um, unfortunately, the price at which the investors were willing to buy it was just not what what the seller would go near so it just it just got called off quite an early stage yeah but but also this week i mean um obviously this is the the cab payments ipo was london's first ipo since since november which is which mm. seems remarkable um and of course hydroelectric hydroelectric's deal was absolutely swamped with orders the book apparently was yeah. Uh, many yeah. many times covered um so that all seems to bode quite well but it wasn't all plain sailing was it um only only one of these deals has gone on to trade uh in the secondary market since and that's cab payments and um i think when i checked this morning so this is a uh, this is Obviously, Friday the seventh of July, it was it was down ten percent on the on the IPO mm. price or thereabouts. Mm. Um, meanwhile, I think Hydroelectrica, you know, relied on cornerstones. I mean, it's good that it got cornerstone investors, but they take up a lot of the deal. And of course, there was a lot of domestic demand, so it doesn't necessarily tell you much about the health of the international market. So, I, I guess the the big thing is, then what what next? Well, most importantly and immediately, the other two IPOs will begin trading. So Nucera began in Frankfurt today. Initially, first thing in the morning, it was up slightly, but it's uh, that's very early days. And, you know, what will matter much more is where it ends this afternoon and, and how it does in the coming days. <laughs> 
Um, Hydroelectrica is beginning trading in Bucharest on Wednesday. Um, so if those if those trade up, that will be, you know, that's really what the market needs and and will be, um, you know, set fair for, for more deals. Um, it, it's a great shame that cab payments has fallen. Bankers on the deal will no doubt have their heads in their hands thinking, you know, we, we literally tried to do everything right to make sure that didn't happen. And, and yet again, it's happened. But as one banker Aidan spoke to said, um, you know, if, if you're surprised by this, you haven't been paying attention to the market in the past 18 months. Uh, actually, it was an investor. Um, so, you know, the, the market has proved very treacherous, to be honest. Yeah, and of course that's that's dissuaded some of the bigger listings from coming mm. at all this year, isn't it? I mean, mm. Renault's electric vehicle arm uh, on, on pair uh, that's been postponed until uh, 2024. We hear, but there still should be uh, smaller deals coming, shouldn't there? Um, I guess if not before the uh, before the height of summer, then certainly in the autumn. Yes, I think I think there should be some in September. Um, an example is Shot Farmer which is a, they make pharmaceutical glassware maker. It's a German company. Um, but the, um, they will, these deals will rely on sentiment staying good over the summer. That will depend principally on, you know, macro things, um, you know, the global economic weather, what happens in Ukraine and, and with, with the US economy and so on. Um, but um, if the, if all of that is okay, then, then, what these deals this week have proved is that there is demand for deals at a price. Investors want them to be cheap, um, but if they're cheap, they will buy them. Yeah. Now, another part of the capital markets that uh, has probably come in for a bit of bit of stick this year or has uh, had something of a, yeah, not, not, it's, not a vintage year, shall we say, but um, showed, some, showed some signs this week of uh, something of a renaissance was the market for our old friend sustainability-linked bonds. Um, we've heard that they aid and abet greenwashing this year and that the targets uh, embedded into these deals aren't meaningful and so on. Uh, but a couple of major European airports have done SLBs this week and I'm I'm absolutely refusing to make a pun about taking off or runways, um, but they've certainly won approval in the market, haven't they? Yeah, the deals went well and it was it was nice to see two deals from the same sector and not after all, not a very big sector, airports. There's only, a, you know, probably half a dozen uh, regular bond issuers in in Europe in the sector um both do sustainability linked bonds in the same week and um you know it it was a significant vote of confidence in the product um i think just for the record i'm not a, a huge buyer of the argument that that these instruments are used for greenwashing or that there's something suspect or or wrong about them obviously it depends how you use them and and uh, you know um, I think people need to be realistic about what they can and can't do. But but I think the interesting thing was that the, uh, you know, banker community that, that Mike spoke to were, were supportive of the deals. And that hasn't always been the case. They've they've there's been a, a, a degree of sort of shoulder shrugging and sort of, um, you know, people sort of looking askance at them um, this year. And, and sort of basically taking the view that investors don't care about them. So, and we didn't hear that this time. So, I mean, so these were deals for Heathrow and uh, was it Rome, Rome Airport? Yeah. 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 Um, now, what did investors like about these that they haven't liked about the other deals? Well, we, we 
I can't give you a categorical answer to that because we, you know, we haven't interviewed all the all the investors in in every deal. But um, what seemed to be the case, and from from the feedback we got, um, was that the the structure seemed relevant to the companies and they were appropriate. Now, um, one of the big complaints about uh, sustainability linked bonds has been that the companies set targets that are too easy to achieve. And, you know, it's always very difficult for anyone outside the deal to, um, you know, evaluate properly how easy a target is to achieve. In fact, we're not running the company and we don't know. But the, um, you know, certainly perceptions will will sort of hit deals if they if they're seen as too easy. And, And one of the ways that they can be seen as too easy is by leaving out scope free emissions. And these are the greenhouse gas emissions that occur not in your own operations such as the electricity and and oil you burn yourself but um in your supply chain either your customers or your suppliers depending on the industry and for airports obviously the the most the the vast amount of the emissions associated with them are those caused by the aircraft that fly in and out now we've we've seen green financings from the uh airport sector before um, which address only things like, you know, how much energy is used in the air, aircraft terminal, in the airport terminal, right? Which are, you know, no doubt good to be sort of clean and green, but they're not, you know, they're not the sort of vast emissions that go on at that airport. And both of these deals did tackle those scope-free emissions. And I think that um, sort of won them respect. Yeah, well, I, I was curious about this. Um as, as the article says uh, uh, by our corporate bond reporter, uh, Mike Turner, um, 95% of Heathrow's carbon footprint uh, comes from mm. aeroplanes taking off and landing there. Mm. Um, and here's the thing. So take 2021, which were the most recent stats I could find on, on Heathrow's website. It hosted uh, 19 million passengers that year, 128,000 people a day, 536 flights taking off or landing every day. Now, bear in mind, its mm. peak year was 2019 mm. when it had 81 million passengers or thereabouts. Mm. You, and we're probably on the trend up from 2021 as mm. we, you mm. know, all start traveling again after the pandemic. What I'm curious about is how how is Heathrow, you know, it's a, it's a business. It's not going to sort of ban flights on environmental yeah. grounds. So where really does this SLB, you know, have its have any sort of effect Surely, if there's any effect of the benefit of uh, scope three <clears throat> emissions coming down at Heathrow, it's because the airlines have gone and bought mm. fuel differently, or done something different themselves, or bought more efficient planes, or something. Surely, it's got nothing to do with Heathrow. Well, this is a very, very good question, and and I think you you know you put your heart your finger on the heart of it. Really, um, people who criticise airports and other companies for their scope three emissions sometimes are. You know they don't think about that they don't they don't think well actually maybe i shouldn't be blaming this organization because there's not much they can do about it but in this case the airports have stuck their necks out and and sort of almost owned the problem of scope free emissions right which you know so they they've sort of been brave by doing that now the question then is uh, how are they going to achieve it and um you know is it easy or difficult and as you pointed out does the sustainability link bond actually give any sort of useful incentive to the company if, if, if it's not something they can control anyway? So, you know, just to take those things separately, 
both of these deals, in fact, had a 2019 baseline, right? So they they are, first of all, using the baseline of the peak year. Hmm. Uh, and that means that any sort of reduction in air travel um, caused by COVID will help them. But of course, as you point out, we do expect air travel to go up. And you're, you're quite right that um, the... Um, you know, the whole a- aviation industry hopes to grow and expects to grow. So, um, you know, it will be pretty difficult. I think um, there's there's also a difference in the ambition of the targets. Um, and and But there's also a difference in the way they're expressed. Now, Heathrow's target for scope three emissions, which it calls in the air emissions, basically those caused by the planes in, in flight, um, is to cut them 15% by 2030. Now, Aeroporti di Roma is a, a 30% cut between 2019 and 2030, but it's expressed slightly differently. It's per passenger scope three emissions. So what that means is that if if their business grows through more passengers and more flights, then they're not holding their hand up to reducing emissions for that, hmm. despite that. You know, it's just, it's just they want things to be more efficient hmm. now as you point out they, these are both reliant on the airline industry doing it and I, I think the airports can be supportive for example by making it easier for um you know what they call sustainable aviation fuel to be used um and and so on but you know realistically it is the it is the airlines and, and aircraft manufacturers who are going to have to achieve this yeah it feels like the airports are sort of stowaways on the on the on the airlines <laughs> here to some extent <laughs> I mean, maybe it makes good sense for them to do that if they if they they must know the sort of again to avoid an awful pun direction of travel for the airline industry in terms mm. of you know fuel efficiency and emissions so i suppose it probably makes some some commercial sense as well to try and uh, get some of the benefit of that with their fundraising perhaps yeah, it's certainly true that um, they've 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 achieved successful deals with it. That suggests the market has seen these as, you know, reasonably ambitious environmentally. The targets are in twenty thirty, so it's a long time before they'll be called to account, and it, it'll it'll appear whether they achieve them or not. Um, and you know, I think I think it demonstrates their commitment which is the main point of these deals to the transition that they that they're hoping to achieve. And so what does this what does this where does this leave the sustainability link bond market? Obviously volumes have uh, not been quite this year what they were in the previous two years mm. um and there's been all this sort of skepticism. Does this now suit a particular type of issuer like there's obviously you know we know it already suited issuers that didn't have the assets to to fund with a use of proceeds bond um airports are an obvious example of, mm-hmm. of one of those mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. what are people saying now about the sort of future of the product yeah it's a good sign for the product i think it shows that when it there's a story to tell that explains why you're using it and particularly when it shows that you're tackling your more difficult emissions or other you know environmental or social issues that the the market will respect it and um you know i i i never thought that slbs were going to go away and you know i think this is a sign that you know significant and important companies are are backing them Heathrow for the first time they they haven't used one before and uh, you know they've put a lot of thought into it the cfo of um, 
Heathrow told us that they'd been working on it for 18 months. So, you know, yeah, it's definitely a good moment for SLBs. OK, well, as promised, uh, John, we have now have your uh, fascinating interview with Valerie Hickey of the World Bank on the uh, future of development finance. I'm delighted to be able to start with Valerie Hickey from the World Bank. Um, she's the Global Director of Environment, Natural Resources and the Blue Economy. Um, Valerie has worked at the WWF in the past and for the last 19 years at the World Bank in countries as diverse as Cambodia and Haiti, dealing with a great variety of issues ranging from rural development, climate change and climate finance to biodiversity and wildlife crime. She's now in charge of grappling with the very difficult issues of how the World Bank can promote economic development while at the same time safeguarding the natural environment we rely on for life. Um, so, Valerie, thank you very much for coming. Um, thank you, John. We're very happy to have you here. We've heard from Maximo Torero about the scale of the problem. So, Valerie, I'd just like to begin by asking, you know, are you finding that the developing country governments the World Bank interacts with are concerned about food and water issues? Are they, are they sort of more concerned even perhaps than, than a few years ago? And, and how important a priority is it for them? I think it's their number one priority. And it's because at the end of the day, whether it's low-income countries, whether it's emerging markets and developing economies, success for them is growth. And growth is slowing. Mm. And at the end of the day, they know that they're not going to be competitive to attract the investment they need to grow as long as 828 million people are going to bed hungry, of which, as Maximo said, 258 million in 58 countries are not just hungry, they're starving to death in 2023. Starving to death. Nobody's going to invest in a country where children are dying because they can't get enough food. Nobody's going to invest in a country where Globally, the economic costs of not having enough water or having too much water are $500 billion a year. And so they know that food and water are absolutely fundamental to growth, and that's why growth is slowing. Mm. And growth is slowing. If you look at emerging markets and developing economies, if you exclude China, their income has been stagnating for the past, since the middle of the last decade. We've just come out with some new numbers that say that this year growth in these emerging markets is going to slow from 4.1% last year to 2.9% this year. Overall global growth is going from 3.1% to 2.1%. And so growth has, is really beginning to slow. And the worst thing is it's beginning to slow at a time when the demand for investment, the demand for the fruits of that growth have gone up. For low-income countries in particular, but also emerging markets and developing countries, the places we work, they've been the victims of COVID, of climate change, of conflict, largely victims of issues that they had no role in creating. And the costs to come back are $2.4 trillion a, a year, $2.4 trillion, just because of the impacts of COVID, climate change, and conflict. And that's something that these countries can't manage without growth. And so it becomes this terribly vicious circle that they can't begin to handle without attention to food and water. 
and it's getting harder and harder to invest in food and water when the cost of capital has gone up. At the same time, the supply of capital has gone down. One out of four low-income countries are basically now excluded from capital markets. We've seen borrowing costs, particularly for C-rated borrowers, go up 14% just since February last year. So you've got a tighter supply of money, the money that's available is more expensive, the needs for money have gone up, and growth has gone down. It is the worst of all worlds at the moment. Mm. And, and actually, there's great complacency, I think, isn't there, in the north, uh, where we are. The, although, you know, people grumble a bit about the markets, there's, we, we just have no idea uh, of the sort of capital drought that's going on, do we? Uh, and the World Bank obviously is positioned as a bridge, right, between uh, Western or Northern capital, essentially, and uh, the developing world. But it's, it's and, it, and it functions in that way, raising AAA mm -hmm. money and, and channeling it to the, to the developing countries. But it can only do a little bit. It's, its balance sheet is not enormous. Um, so it's very important to sort of broaden that channel, isn't it? So what, and, and, and clearly one of the problems that Maximo was highlighting was, was the lack of finance. Um, he emphasised uh, the, the in, insufficiency and inefficiency of finance at the moment. So how can that channel basically be broadened, Valerie? So I think it's about us no longer thinking about finance just in terms of MDB finance and public and private finance as being two separate things. I think it's one of the, the, the really difficult things we're faced with in the world today is that anytime we talk about finance for these global development issues, we narrow what we mean to public finance, international public finance, from the so-called global north to the global south, and that's much too narrow. And by the way, I actually disagree, John. I don't think the global north Mm. is complacent about these issues. Just walking from my hotel this morning to see the number of homeless people here, I think mm. poverty has never been more in our faces and the idea that there, we don't live in a world with poor countries and rich countries, we live in a world with poor people and rich people. 60% of the poorest people on this planet live in middle income countries. So we have to remember that and I think that's why there is, as a shareholder bank, as a bank owned by 183 countries in the world, we represent the views of all of those countries and we share the values that we need to end poverty on a livable planet. We know we can't have a world without poverty, in a world without access to nutritious food, in a world without access to a Goldilocks amount of water, not too much, not too little. But for us at the bank, how we want to broaden the conversation around capital is by doing two things. One is making sure we're having a discussion with developing world countries, whether they're low income, whether they're middle income, around the use of their own public budgets. Because we live in a very strange world where countries are in deep fiscal distress, particularly because 60% of them are at risk of debt distress and debt default. And yet they're spending $1.75 trillion a year on subsidies. Just in the agriculture sector alone, $635 billion a year in subsidies, much of which are perverse. Mm. I mean, we're seeing this, the agricultural subsidies just for beef, palm oil, and soy are responsible for 14% of global deforestation. So mm. this isn't, doesn't make sense because countries are spending, our countries are spending to get farmers, big and small, 
to produce more in terrible ways and to pollute mm. the land when they're doing it. And then they have to spend an equivalent amount or not more to clean up mm. from those externalities. And so this is a real problem. So one of the things we spend a lot of time doing is trying to help public budgets align and mm. make more sense and repurpose subsidies in a way that makes sense. But then, of course, our job has to be to attract private capital. We mm. have to get you all, we have to get private capital to the table. And I worry that we've been in a, in a groundhog day of first dates yeah. with private capital where we keep saying we need to do it, particularly at global events. We have these great first dates and it never goes further. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that we don't understand each other well. So we see ourselves at the World Bank Group as having two roles when it comes to, to private capital. The first is what we call private capital enabling. It's the pre-competitive stuff we do to make the investment environment more conducive to allow you to go and make a profit. So it means aligning subsidies better. It means creating a capital investment pipeline because often what we're hearing from private banks is there isn't a pipeline to invest in. It means setting the rules of the game, helping countries have more regulatory certainty so you know the rules of the game. That's very important to us from a private capital enabling perspective. But then there's the private capital mobilization, actually working hand in hand on deal flow. Whether that comes in the form of specific risk reduction, the kind of work our multilateral investment guarantee agency does through political risk insurance. Whether it's co-investment, we'll just go in and reduce your equity exposure, for example, by, by um, investing with you. Whether it's credit enhancement, something that we don't do enough of, but which we can do much more of in terms of things like partial credit guarantees, for example, to buy down the cost of borrowing on the bond market. So these are the sorts of things we can do, we need to do better, and I think we have to start by going beyond this round of first dates and actually get down to the country level, creating a country platform where we can talk together around specific deal flow, whether that deal flow already exists or whether we need to create it together. And when you do these initiatives, and you obviously this is something the World Bank has tried to do for some time, right? What, what, what are the problems? What do you encounter? Is it that you, you'll do set up something and then the banks don't come and the, the, the investment managers don't come? Or is it that um, you know, they want something else that you can't provide? Or what, you know, why isn't it gelling? So I think, to be honest, we've made a mistake over the past 30, 40 years, probably longer. And that's that in terms of private capital enabling, we focused on projects. Right. We've tried to create islands of project perfection mm. in a sea of chaos. Mm. And instead, what we need to do is create and build and develop country systems so that the system can actually begin to develop a capital investment pipeline on its own. Mm. One thing, for example, that we've really recognized we, do, we need to do much more of in order to attract private capital is build the environment and social impact systems in countries. Because one of the things that private capital is always telling us is that the costs in time and treasure to ongoing protests, to lawsuits, because the rules of the game are not set, because stakeholder consultation in country is weak, because resettlement rules where people need to be resettled for agriculture is weak, where problems with, on, with biodiversity are causing people to protest 
is causing a huge amount of losses and it's scaring already frightened capital out of mm -hmm. these markets. And so we need to really spend a lot of time building systems and it's something that we're doing rather than talking about green projects anymore, we talk about green systems mm -hmm. and green resilient and inclusive systems so that it's much more setting countries up for success rather than having once-off projects that once the money goes away, too often mm. the results have as well. Can you give an example of a, of a green system like that? So yeah. in Peru, for example, we did an analysis to understand why does Peru itself spend less than 50 cents of every dollar that it allocates in its public budget for infrastructure including agricultural infrastructure and infrastructure to get agricultural produce from farm to markets, why does less than 50% allocated ever get spent? And why is private capital not flowing? And we found it simply because lawsuits mm. were causing enormous cost increases for private capital, so scaring them out of the market, and were basically slowing down the ability of countries to, of Peru to spend its own money. Mm. And so we've been working with them through our development policy lending to strengthen their systems, to cut down the delays, both in terms of time and treasure, to improve, for example, their stakeholder engagement processes, so that before an investment starts, they can do that pre-competitive work to make sure everybody knows what's going to happen, to take on board those concerns, to help improve design of projects so that those concerns are heard, and that reduces the lawsuits, it reduces the protests that in time accelerates delivery. Mm. So Valerie, do you want to um, expand on your point there about um, systems and trust in, in the... So Iceland is actually a great example and it's an example we use in other countries when it comes to the fish food business, for example. Mm. Um, so fish and fish food, as many of you will know, is the most traded food commodity globally and yet it's a system that is under deep distress and in deep trouble. I've just come from Ghana. Right now, because of overfishing, because of climate change and heating waters, Ghana is at risk of losing 60% of its fish stock because the fish are moving north. Think about that, 60% of its fish stock means the number of jobs, which are so important in, fish, in the fishing industry in Ghana are gonna collapse. Fishing in Ghana is used as a social safety net. When things go bad, when people can't get a job, they're told, go fish. So imagine that's gonna be gone. And so we've taken lessons from places like Iceland where we need to think about several things. First is how do you build a system for using the whole of fish? Fish waste is a huge problem globally. We're using less than half of the fish we're catching. We're using too much of it for fish feed. So how do you begin to think about the whole of fish and creating value chains that do more than just primary production of fisheries? And then how do you create fishing accelerators, something that Iceland has done so well, which is connecting local capital to local entrepreneurs and local research and development to do that? Because what we're finding is it's the lack of information, people not knowing in the food and water sector sort of what is possible, what are the metrics. Metrics move markets at the end of the day, and particularly in food and water, there aren't good metrics. How do we ensure the incentives are there? And sometimes those incentives are created through proximity, putting people into the same accelerator so they get to know each other, so they can understand those incentives. And how can we encourage innovation? And I think with more information, better incentives, 
and more and better innovation, you can begin to create those systems and replicate those systems that can help drive investment into these sectors. Valerie, um, I hope we've still got time. I want to ask you about the link between the food and water agenda and biodiversity. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we often, in fact, these are often sort of put in, in conflict with each other. And you hear, for example, oh, we can't afford to have sustainable agriculture or organic production or regenerative agriculture because it, we just need to produce as much as we possibly can. And so are they, in the policy world, are, are these seen as uh, sort of harmonious together or sometimes in conflict that you've got two agendas clashing? How does that work? I think in reality, right now, they are in conflict, but for all the wrong reasons. So agricultural expansion in the last 20 years has been responsible for half of global deforestation. That's enormous. Mm. Um, there are conflicts between this idea that agriculture has to expand to produce more. But the truth is we already waste a third of all food produced because there isn't the logistics, there isn't the storage capacity to get that food from farm to fork. So it's not always a question of, of growing more or raising more mm. beef or, 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 or sheep or other livestock. It's a matter of managing those food chains better. And so that becomes important. But I think where we're doing an awful lot of work is just to work with the financial sector to talk about the risks from biodiversity loss to their loan portfolios, including their agricultural loan portfolios. Just here in the Eurozone, I guess not here in the Eurozone, in the neighboring Eurozone mm -hmm. countries, the European Central Bank just came out with a report that talked about the fact that 72% of companies in the Eurozone, 75% of the loan portfolio is at risk from biodiversity loss. If you take out that risk coming from the supply chain, it's still 61%. We worked in Malaysia, for example, which is well known as an agricultural export giant, agricultural product production giant. 54% of its commercial loan portfolio is at risk from the loss of biodiversity because 54% is heavily dependent on the free services that biodiversity provides, mm. which is largely water and pollination. And so understanding those risks goes back to this idea of how important information is. Understanding what those risks are and how that's going to affect performance, how it's going to affect sort of the ability to repay loans is critical. And that's something that we're spending a lot of time doing. And do you think in places like Malaysia, the understanding of that is growing? And, you know, I mean, their best place, their close, their banks are lending to these companies and yeah. so on. I mean, are they sort of beginning to realize that... Um, you know, that biodiversity is a target as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where actually going to the trouble of looking at the numbers and making this about financial risk as opposed to talking about biodiversity loss as a terrible thing to mm. have. We have to mm. move from, from biodiversity being a nice to have where people think it's a luxury good to understanding that it's a must have from an economic mm. perspective. We've looked at sub-Saharan Africa and the loss of fisheries, forestry, or pollinators, the loss of any one of those below a critical threshold would lead to 10% loss of GDP by 2030 every year after that. Think about that. In countries where they're already struggling to get any positive growth. And so understanding biodiversity is something more than pandas and elephants, though those are important and cute. Mm -hmm. That it really is 
an mm. undervalued, underinvested utility that is enabling agricultural product production, it's enabling water management, mm. is making, I think, the private sector sit up and understand. It's certainly making government sit up and understand. And I think that's why we were able to get to the Global Biodiversity Framework Agreement mm. at Montreal last year as part of COP15 for the Global Biodiversity, uh, the, the Convention on Biological Diversity, because finally this is seen as something that underpins economies. It underpins, if we're going to have a world without hunger, it can't be a world mm. without biodiversity. Mm. I think people are finally getting this. Mm. Um, let me just ask if there's another question from any, anyone would like to ask in the audience. Um, well, I would like, Valerie, to ask you about carbon offsets and biodiversity credits, which we are now beginning to be talked about, because the, I think the sort of biodiversity agenda is people now know it's in the sort of waiting room of the financial markets. It's at, this is the next thing they're going to have to deal with. But is, is, will, that be, will offsets and credits be, be the way that this is, starts to become kind of material financially? I certainly don't think it's the only way. I think the biodiversity credit market doesn't exist except in some very narrow places like in the California wetlands market. Mm -hmm. And the reason it doesn't exist is because we do not have an equivalent in the biodiversity world to a ton of carbon. The reason the carbon markets are so liquid is because a ton of carbon, whether it comes from reducing emissions from cutting forests, whether it comes from a coal-fired power plant and shutting it down, a ton of carbon equivalent mm. is the same. Mm. But even in the carbon markets, they're not working particularly well. They're overly fragmented. The price is much too low. I was looking at the price on the largest carbon spot exchange market right now is less than $2 a ton for nature-based carbon. It's in the new Singapore hub exchange, the CIX, that was just launched a few weeks ago. It is about $5.36 a ton. That's nowhere ne near where it needs to be to make a difference so we have to think about carbon markets and ultimately if biodiversity offset markets come in as a way of layering revenue, but they are never going to substitute when it comes to the private sector for other forms of revenue coming from that as well. And that's why we need to look at these as one of several types of stacked revenue, but certainly not as the only answer. Okay, so what, what are the other kinds of revenue going to be? So one of the things we talk a lot about in the agricultural space, for example, is how do we tap into a broader forest economy? So how do we look at the forest agricultural landscapes and look across how do you reintroduce agroforestry? How do you reintroduce sustainable forest management? How do you look at nature-based tourism as a way to attract people? Local food tourism, which is becoming extremely lucrative globally. How do you begin to think about not having a silver bullet? There's been much too much hype around carbon markets being a silver bullet to drive different decision-making. It's not, nor is nature-based tourism, nor is agroforestry nor is organic mm. farming. We have to think, rather than silver bullets, we have to think mm. about silver buckshot, where you pull <laughs> together lots of different good ideas, mm. depending on the landscape, mm. and you figure out how to make it work so that agriculture is more productive, it's more profitable, including for those 600 million farmers that Maximo talked about, the backbone of the food labor force globally, mm. who tend to be the most forgotten and often the most hungry people out there. So how do we make it all work for them? Mm. Um, okay, so uh, just, to, just to end perhaps, um, I'd just like to ask you about the financial barriers to investing, because 
We've got, obviously, there's a lot of money. Um, we've talked, I mean, I know you've touched on some of this before, but the, um, you know, the, the need is enormous, right? But it just isn't going there. And so, you know, realistically, what, is, what are the barriers that are stopping the, the trillions that are held by the asset managers and banks in the north from, from actually solving these problems? I think there's probably four key barriers. The first is predictability. The rules of the game aren't set in too many countries. Or the subsidies are in place in such a way that they diminish the ability of private companies to come in and make a profit, to be competitive. So we have to fix the rules of the game. The second are institutions. So whether it's public institutions that are not great partners for the private sector to work with, whether it's smaller private institutions, again, those 600 million small farmers, each of which are their own private company, many of whom don't have the administrative structure to be able to borrow. Mm. And if they do borrow, they don't have the organizational framework to spend the money and report against it. So how do we work to build stronger institutions? Mm. I think the third thing is the lack of public infrastructure. We need better public infrastructure such that in a very simple risk-reward cost-profit model, the infrastructure is there to get goods to market, to keep the goods fresh while getting them there. Mm. And that, that has mm. to be about public infrastructure. Mm. And then finally, there are constraints themselves in local banking sectors and the fact that in too many emerging markets and developing economies, and certainly in low-income countries, the local capital markets aren't deep enough, they're not efficient enough, and they're certainly not well-regulated enough. Mm, mm. And where you don't have those sorts of capital markets who can take longer risk, longer maturities, more risk, you're dependent on a banking sector that too often thinks about anything in agriculture and water as being too much of a risk. They don't know how to price risk in the sector. They may not be able to accept the longer-term maturities necessary. If you're talking about agriculture, and the capital needs, for example, to have better agricultural productivity, you're not going to be able to pay off those, those capital investment mm. needs in year one. Yet, for in many emerging mm. markets and developing economies, they can't lend mm. unless they can get that money back mm. in the first mm. year. Mm. Mm. And so there are those constraints that we mm. need to work on. So it's those, if we could sort those four things, have better regulations, more predictable rules of the game, stronger institutions of the public and private sector, better public infrastructure, and better financial rules of the game and financial markets locally that made agriculture, that made investing in water infrastructure and water provision more predictable. Mm. I think that could attract the kind and size of private financing. We need to solve these problems. Um, please join me in thanking uh, Valerie Hickey for joining us from the World Bank. Thank you, John. Well, if you want to follow any of the stories on this podcast, then head to globalcapital.com. Thanks to John for joining me to record this edition. And thank you to Valerie Hickey of the World Bank for her generosity in the interview. And thank you most of all for listening. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.